um, and a blessing. Take your Bibles and turn over to Zechariah. Zechariah, and um, this, more, this afternoon we had a memorial service for Dr. Lloyd Smith, uh, who was a member of our church. He wrote over 300 songs, hymns, composed uh, choir arrangements and choruses, and he was ni almost 94, 93 years old, passed away. Uh, John Peterson was one of his mentors, uh, who we sang the first song this evening about, and, um, and he moved away a couple years ago with health issues, and uh, he used to sit in the back on those chairs back there, and uh, I appreciate uh, his uh, kind spirit and uh, always positive. Uh, he called me Doc and uh, was always encouraging after the services and uh, my messages. And even as a, a young pastor, I appreciate that. And, of course, I knew of his music even before I met him. And, uh, but as they were talking about in the testimonies today, he wrote about three things that were, that were always a theme in his music. The gospel, uh, heavily upon the cross, and uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wrote a lot of patriotic music. In fact, several patriotic cantatas that were popular. He was a strong patriot. And a lot of his music was written with the second coming in mind. He liked music that talked about heaven and the coming of Jesus Christ and the triumph and the victory that Jesus would bring. And uh, a couple of those songs were played uh, in the memorial service this afternoon. And I'm thinking about this evening in chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is about the coming of the king. The theme verse is chapter 9 in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes. And that is the rallying of this book. That is the theme of this book. That's what I've entitled the series for Zechariah is Behold, Your King Comes. And, uh, and that, is, that is the hope that Zechariah was sharing in this book that he had written. And last week we saw in chapter 9 it began with a burden. The very first word, the burden of the word of the Lord. This was a burden that Zechariah was, was going to carry. This burden will go all the way into chapter 11. So chapter 9, 10, and 11 is one burden, one sermon, one message, one oracle. And then chapter 12 opens up the second oracle or the second burden that will conclude the book, chapter 12, 13, and 14. These two burdens that Zechariah carries at the end of, of this book. And, and there are three future prophetic events that are focused in, uh, in, these, um, in, in these oracles or these burdens. Now, the first one we talked about last week in chapter 9 was a future conquest or a conqueror that would come. And that would come into the Holy Land and he would purge the land of those who had mistreated God's people, but he would providentially protect his, um, his, his Jerusalem. That conquest was a Greek ruler, the country of Greece is mentioned in chapter 9, who will march through the land of Palestine, beginning in the north with a city called Hadrach, and ending in the south with this Philistine city called Ashdod, and then also Jerusalem, but Jerusalem wouldn't be burned, it wouldn't be conquered. He would pass through, stop, and go and leave Jerusalem untouched. Places like Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod that are all mentioned. 
From verse 7 and 8 of chapter 9, this leader will attempt to attack Jerusalem, but he'll fail because God will providentially protect it. Verse 8 ends with one day, God will protect Israel to the point that no conqueror will invade the Holy Land anymore. We saw this prophecy as taking place 175 years after Zechariah under the man named Alexander the Great. We talked about that and I showed you some pictures and things about that last week. That was the first prophecy that Zechariah sees in the first part of chapter 9, the first eight verses. It was future from, from Zechariah's standpoint, 175 years in the future, but it's past to us. The second prophetic event, which moved clearly on this side of the Old Testament, is seen as the first coming of the Messiah. That is verse 9. Behold, your king comes. He's going to come as a conqueror riding upon the colt of a donkey. And he's going to be meek and lowly. He's not like, going to be like any of the conquerors before. Not like Nebuchadnezzar. Not like Solomon. Not like David. Um, not like uh, Alexander the Great. Instead of riding on a war horse, he's going to be riding on a colt of a donkey. He's going to be meek. He's going to be just. He's going to be righteous and humble. He's going to bring with him peace in his wings. This king will offer himself as a sacrifice and offer forgiveness to the nation of Israel. That's the first coming. Now, Zechariah, in prophecies, he looked through, he saw that he didn't see a first and second coming, but we look back, and just like Alexander the Great, who conquered the Palestine, and uh, the event that I read to you about him coming to Jerusalem, we also look back at this first coming. And Matthew records that this was a prophecy of, uh, of Jesus who he rode into Jerusalem. The third prophetic event in these chapters is the second coming of the Messiah. As quickly as verse 9 starts and declares the king is coming, it jumps over a period of 2,000 years over the mystery of this church, church age, into his second coming. And from verses 10 down to the end of the chapter, and in fact into chapter 10 and 11, um, uh, Zechariah will see the future coming peace of this champion, this savior and lamb who will now come as a mighty shepherd, a conquering king. He will bring with him peace on earth. He will overthrow the curse. He will bring judgment to the enemies of God's people. This begins in verse 9 and will actually run for the rest of the prophecy. And scattered in these verses will be a call for the Messiah to come. What will he bring when he does come? And these are some classic Old Testament messianic passages that even the Jewish people today look back on desiring for them to be fulfilled. And so these are some, some classic takes. Now, I, I didn't finish chapter 9, but can I just draw your attention on some facts that I think would be important for you to see from chapter 9, 10 through 17. I want you to take special note of verse 10. Look what it says in chapter 9 and verse 10. And, and he says, kind of in the middle, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the river. Have you heard the phrase, from the river to the sea? Has that been popular here in the last six to nine months? In fact, we had a senator who was, um, I don't know what the term would be, 
um, not silenced and not, it was probably reprimanded, I think, because of the term that was used here. It was the rallying cry for Hamas. And the reference from the sea is the Mediterranean to the river, the Jordan River, and that from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, Palestine would be free. That's kind of the comments that have been made. However, there is a prophecy that the Jewish people are going to have the land from the sea to the sea, from the river to the ends of the sea. Where does that terminology come from from this day? See, there's been fighting over these types of land, this land for thousands of years going back to promises that God has seen. Also in chapter, uh, verse 11 and 12, if you can just ride around, you can see here, there's a reference, an indication, an allusion to Joseph when he talks about being liberated from Ephraim, being raised up as a son in um, in verse uh, 11, talking about being a prisoner out of a pit that has no water. A cistern, an empty cistern that you've been thrown in. And then the prisoner of hope in verse 12. And then I will render unto him double for what he receives. So you have, you have just some allusion to the story of Joseph here um, in, in that verse. The Jewish people have had double the trouble. Isaiah records that for their evil and for their wickedness, they will receive double suffering. And has it not been true that the Jewish people over the last 3,000 years has experienced double trouble, suffering like no other people? We talk about racism. But the racism that has been geared toward the Jewish people because of their ethnicity, because of who they are, goes all the way back to the reformers in the Middle Ages, even before that, even to the Romans. And they have received suffering after suffering after suffering, right? But because of their um, double suffering, God promises a double reward, a double blessing. And that reminds us of Joseph's sons. Do you remember when Joseph's sons came before Jacob and Jacob gave to Joseph's sons double blessing? He got two tribes out of one. And so Ephraim and Manasseh became a double tribe, two separate sons. So, uh, so Joseph and his descendants received, and even Ephraim's mentioned. Notice in verse 14 of chapter 9 here that uh, the Lord is seen as a warrior like arrows as lightning, and the Lord God will blow like a trumpet, and he'll come like a whirlwind from the south. Notice the Lord will appear like a lightning storm with a trumpet blast, like a storm that will come from the south. Look at verse 15. Notice the Lord of armies who will come in and win the war. And because of that, there will be dancing and celebration, drinking and noise, just like the, from the wine that will fill the bowls in the corners of the altar. There'll be, there'll be a celebration and excitement when Jesus comes back and conquers the land. There will be joy and gladness and laughter in the streets. And then verse 16 of this chapter talks about the Lord is going to save them in that day. He will gather them like a flock. Flock of people. He talks. He's going to use an imagery of sheep as a shepherd. He will, be, he will gather them like stones in a crown. In other words, like jewels of a part of his crown that will be a part of him. Now, as he ends this, this, uh, this chapter, he's going to move in. Remember, it's all one continual burden. But he's going to move in in chapter 10 and 11, and he's going to return to this imagery of shepherd and sheep. 
And it's going to overshadow these next two chapters. In chapter 10, he's going to address, uh, God's going to address his people that he will restore them like a flock. There's going to be a positive aspect of this, of this future coming of the Messiah. And in chapter 11, he's going to address two types of shepherds. A good shepherd and a bad shepherd in the course of prophecy. So let's look at chapter 10 and let's kind of walk through this as quickly as we can. Notice that the first word in, cha in chapter 10 verse 1 is the word ask. Ask ye of the Lord or pray of the Lord that he would send rain in the time of the latter rain so the Lord will make bright clouds and he'll give them showers of rain and to everyone grass in the field. So in verse 1 he's calling them to pray for rain. We don't pray for rain as much in our culture today because we're not farmers. But a farmer learns to depend upon God for rain. We just see the storms and the rain and the sun and the snow as some random act of God in one place over another. But understand that the rains and the weather and the earthquakes and all of those things, we call them acts of nature, but they are acts of God. God controls the weather and the world. It's all sustained by His hand. And remember, rain, if, if rain does not come, crops do not grow. You can't have corn, you can't have grain, you can't have blessing from your harvest if you don't have rain. And remember God promises in verse 17 that this is going to be a great and wonderful thing that God is going to do. He's going to flourish the Holy Land. Corn is going to, be, is going to bring cheer to the young man. There's going to be new wine talking about grapes and fruit that is going to flourish from the vine. He's talking about a day when in the, when, when in the land there's going to be plenty of food and people are going, to, are going to enjoy the blessings of the land. But you can't have that unless rain comes. So he's asking the people, pray for rain. Pray for rain. There God pictured the land of Israel as bringing forth amazing fruit and blessing. And here Zechariah calls on Israel to seek God for rain. Like the latter rains, this would be the spring rains, compared to the former rains that would be in, in fall. Spring rains bought, brought about the abundance of the growth of the crops. This is their dependence upon God for providing the blessing. He wants them to trust God to bring the blessings. And I believe as he's looking at the future, he's asking for the Jewish people to pray for the coming Messiah to come and bring the reins of blessing upon this world. I think Jesus says the same thing when in his Lord's Prayer he says this, he gives a model. He says that we are to pray, Thy kingdom come. That is a prayer for believers to pray for God's will, God's kingdom to come to this earth to bring about the peace and the blessings of the promises that he has made to his people. We are to pray for that. Verse 2 tells uh, the Jewish people about the warning of, of, of not praying to God, not trusting God, because in verse 2 he says, For the idols have spoken emptiness or vanity, and the diviners or the sorcerers have seen a lie. They've told you a lie. They've been false dreams to you. They comfort you in emptiness. In other words, they don't bring comfort. Therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. He pictures the people of Israel as wandering around without a shepherd. Why? Because they looked to the idols. God warns the people not to trust the minds of men and the lies of the devil. You see, Israel in the past had gone to idols to pray for rain. 
They had sought out magic and demon worship for blessings, just like the Canaanites did, who prayed to Baal. They had, uh, Israel always had this problem of turning to other gods to provide for them. Always looking for another thing to trust in besides God. These were small idols that would have been brought into your home that you would have prayed for and you would have asked the, the blessing you put out in the yard or make taken to a shrine, something that you would have prayed down to. He says they offer up empty dreams and empty comfort. They don't bring satisfaction. That's why Israel wandered as sheep without a shepherd because they turned to the wrong leadership. They were turning to the wrong things. Can I ask you this evening, what do you trust to bless you? Is it your job? Is it your money, your bank account, your, your finances? What becomes an idol and a God to you that you trust to bring you blessing? Or do you cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I want you to be my trust and I want you to bring my satisfaction. Now, what is a sign that the rain is coming? How do you know that the rain is coming? We turn on the news. No, no, no. Um, you know, you ask Travis or whatever, or, or you know, call the number. We used to call them. Remember, you could call the the weather number on the phone. That was back when we actually had dial phones when I was a kid, and and you could call the weather. And I was allowed. That was the only person I was able to call. I was allowed to call the weather and and check what the weather was. But if you were out in the field and and you could see, how would you know that rain was coming? Well, there are two things. Number one, you could see. And if you saw a cloud that was dark, that meant the storm is on its way. But you could also hear, if you hear the thunder in the distance, right? If you hear thunder in the distance or maybe you see lightning, it's at night, it's coming down and you, you realize, hey, rain's coming, we better get inside. There are signs that rain comes. What are the signs that rain is coming? A storm. Did you notice in the previous chapter how God is pictured? He's pictured as lightning and a trumpet. And clouds. What comes before the crops grow? The storm. Now there's a pattern. There's an imagery that we need to understand in prophecy. To receive blessing, one must first go through suffering. For blessing to come, you have to go through the storm. Rains mean storm and lightning and thunder and clouds. And it's out of the storm clouds comes the rain, and from the rains, the flowers and growth. That is a pattern, a spiritual pattern, but it also is a physical pattern, but it teaches us a spiritual lesson. Do you remember the Lord Jesus Christ would also model this for us? Before he is to receive the glory of the Father, he must first suffer the cross. To suffer the storm of being the lamb. And then once he's the lamb and suffered the wrath of God. Then he is highly exalted and given a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. And if the Lord Jesus gave a pattern that first comes suffering. Then comes glory and blessing. That is also a pattern for his people. And it will be a pattern for the nation of Israel. They must first go through suffering. And experience the wrath of God to receive the blessing that is going to come. So when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, we are also acknowledging that the wrath of God must come too. Because God's kingdom is not going to come until first His wrath comes. And salvation is not going to come to us 
until first we accept the wrath of God that has been laid upon his son. And also, just as a Christian believer, the New Testament writers, Paul and Peter, they all talk about suffering in the same way. You, you want to be great? Then you first be least. You want, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then you first endure the persecution and the suffering and be faithful at what God has called you. And then God will bring the, the, the blessings And so if Jesus Christ went through that, then Paul says, then I will gladly fellowship in his suffering so that one day I can be pleasing in the sight of of the Lord. So this is a pattern as well in prophecy because before the coming kingdom that is going to bring peace and the abundance of crop, there must first come an intense time that the Bible says that there have been no time before it that will come upon this earth. It is called the day of the Lord. And, and people will be judged and the nation will shake and earthquakes and storms and the wrath of God that is going to come upon this earth. And Israel must go through that wrath. I don't believe the church is going to go through that wrath. We've already experienced the wrath of God. And that was through Jesus Christ. But that is interesting that that pattern is set throughout prophecy and is prophesied here and even laid out in the chapter here in such a way because he's talking about the blessing. Now look at verse 3. As he says, he talks about his anger that is kindled against the shepherds and the pun- he will punish the goats, and the Lord of hosts shall visit the flock, the house of Judah, and he hath made as his goodly horse is in battle, a war horse. Then look at the verse uh, 4, and out of him comes forth a corner, or a cornerstone, and out of him a nail, out of the tent, and out of him the battle bow, and out of him every oppressor together. So three connections to the Messiah that is given imagery. He's going to be a cornerstone, a stone in the corner that would lift up the, um, the, the, the building. This would be a stability. A cornerstone was used as an imagery for a leader or a kingdom that one could find rest in. This imagery is also used in the New Testament for Jesus, who is the foundation of the church from 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Peter 2. A building will rest upon the cornerstone. And this imagery here in this verse 4 is picturing the Messiah. This is messianic in nature, that one day they will look at the cornerstone and they will rest in him. A tent peg or a nail is used here in the King James. This would stake down a tent or it was used on a center pole in the middle of a tent uh, to hold up valuables. So you'd have this center pole and the tent would come up and a, a large nail was nailed into that middle post and then they would hang the valuables or hang what we would see as a coat rack today that they would hang it on. And here this is pictured as, as something that would, you could hang your hopes upon that you can trust in. He'll be a nail in your tent. You can hang all of your hopes in, all of your valuables, you can rest upon him. Almost similar to an imagery that we would use, like an anchor for a ship. This would be an anchor for a, for a tent. The battle bow, or the bow that would be used of a warrior, this speaks of an instrument of power and of strength. 
a choice weapon for a soldier to, to accomplish against his enemy. The Messiah is not only going to be a man of stability that people will be able to rest in and build their lives upon and their kingdom upon, but he will be a warrior champion that they can trust in like David against Goliath. And he will fight their battles. It's Wednesday. And I know on a Wednesday you need hope. And I, and, and I trust and I pray that your hope, just like Zechariah would cry out for the Messiah in the prayer for Israel's hope to be in this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, that that is also for the Christian and for the church. He is our hope as well. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we can hang our valuables upon Him. We can stake claim to His promises. We can see Him as our champion who will fight our battles. And we can lean upon Him as a rock to lift up our home and our family and our life. Zechariah sees Israel resting in their Messiah. And the reason Israel cannot find peace and stability today in the Holy Land is because their hope and security is not in Jesus of Nazareth. They're still looking for him, and he's already come. Where do you find your rest in hard times? From chapter uh, 10, verses 6 down to verse 12, he just talks about the strength of his people. Notice he says, I will seven times in these verses... He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house. I will have mercy upon them. I am the Lord in verse 6. In verse 8, he said, I will hiss for them. I have redeemed them. Verse 9, I will sow them among the people and they shall uh, uh, remember me in far countries. Verse 10, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt. In the middle of that verse, I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction. Notice verse 12 concludes this as he started. I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in my name, in his name, in the Lord's name, saith the Lord. So this is a focus here. Um, interesting in verse 8, he says, I will hiss. The King James uses the word hiss. If you have a different version, it would say the word whistle. It means to blow through the teeth. Um, this is used also in, in Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 7, Isaiah 5, 26, and Isaiah 7, 18. The hissing or the whistling. Dogs respond to whistles. You can hiss or whistle through your teeth at a dog and they'll respond. Did you know that bees also, a beekeeper can whistle or use a whistle or noise to get the bees to follow them. You can find that parallel passage in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 18. He will hiss and the fly will follow. He will hiss and the bee will follow. You say, well, what does all that have to do with? In other words, what he, he's using this as a terminology that one day the Messiah is going to whistle. And when he whistles and hisses, his people like bees, like dogs, like flies are going to regather to the Holy Land. They're going to come back from far as Babylon and Assyria, from all the nations of the world, verse 9 says. And they will live in the land. And the land, it says in verse 10, will not even be able to hold it. It's not even going to be enough for them. They're going to go as far north as Lebanon and as far south as Egypt 
And as far as the wide is east and west, and there's going to be so many people, so many Jewish people who will come back to the land from all over the world that the land itself is not going to be enough. They're going to expand their borders. And in the end, they will march in His name and give praise to His name. This is not just talking about a physical returning to the land, even though that is what's happening or what's going to happen in this prophecy. But this is also talking about a spiritual revival. So one day, God will call all of His people from the far west and the far east, all of the Jewish people from all over the world, He will call them back to His land. And they will pack in in the millions back into that small strip from the river to the sea, from the north to the south, from Lebanon down to Egypt. They will pack in that area. And it won't just be a physical restoring and a physical revival. We saw a portion of that in 1948. Thousands upon thousands of Jewish people who returned to the Holy Land. Calls went out all over the place for Jewish people to come out of World War II from all of the nations and come to the Promised Land. And there have been thousands and millions upon, upon millions of Jewish people who have constantly over the last 75 and 80 years that have made their way slowly back to uh, the Promised Land. But there's still over 7 million Jews in the United States. One day, these Jewish people are going to make their way back to the promised land and they will experience a spiritual revival. Which means, to only receive a spiritual revival means that Israel will wake up, their eyes will be open, and they will see Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and they will accept Him as their King. That's the only way the nation of Israel can experience a spiritual revival. Is they have to accept His Son the Son of God. And we saw a portion of that, but I don't believe that this prophecy was fulfilled in 1948. I don't technically believe that this prophecy is being fulfilled in the present. I believe that what we saw after World War II and what we have seen with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in, in our past generations is that God can do it. It's not going to be hard for Him to regather the people. Just, just think of another terrible holocaust where one leader will decide to try and attempt to wipe out the Jewish people again. And from every nation of this world, there will be intense persecution as it was in a smaller scale in World War II. And for it to happen from one part of the continent to the next. And for them to rally themselves and come back to the one place that is their land. And for God to providentially both protect them and to bring them to the point where they will receive Him as their Savior. So in chapter 10, there is a restoration. He's talking about a restoration that is taking place for the nation of Israel. Because they've rejected Him, they will then one day return to Him and He will bless them in their land. He will blow a whistle and they will come and they will bow before Him and receive Him as their King and He will bless them in the land. And, um, and they will be so plenty and they will walk with Him up and down in His name. And uh, this is interesting. If we connect that to one of the previous uh, pictures that we saw, Gentile people, one um, t 
10, yeah, for every one Jew, there will be 10 Gentiles who will come along and grab a hold of their skirt and say, take me to Jesus. I want to see Jesus. We're seeing this repeated again. Now, in, uh, I got two, two minutes, basically, in chapter 11. Um, there are 17 verses in chapter 11. As we read this, it says, Open the door, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Wail or howl. Um, one, one version says cypress trees. That would be a fir tree. For the cedar is fallen because the mighty are spoiled. The mighty trees are spoiled. Howl, O you oaks of Bashan, and the forest of the vintage is come down. The forests have been hewn down and cut down. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds. For their glory has been spoiled. A voice like the roaring of a young lion. For the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Now what is going on in the first three verses? Um, he's going to continue talking about shepherds and false shepherds. But Israel has always been prone to listening to the wrong voices. And because they listen to the wrong voices, they suffer greatly because of it. One author wrote that in his estimation, Zechariah 11 is the most difficult chapter in the whole Old Testament. And he said, because it has so many interpretive struggles and challenges... It was at that point that I stopped reading that commentary and went to another one. The issue surrounds when and what is taking place in chapter 11. Is this talking about a past event? They all understand that this is talking about a destruction of the Holy Land. But when is this destruction of the Holy Land taking place? Is this taking place under Nebuchadnezzar? If, it was, if it's Zechariah, then he's looking back at the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. Is this talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD after Jesus? Or is this talking about a far distant future destruction of Jerusalem and Israel and, and the temple under the Antichrist and a future confederation of nations who will march on to Jerusalem and destroy the tribulational temple. So the argument is over those three ideas. What is happening in this chapter is Israel is rejecting their good shepherd. He has come and offered himself as their king. What Israel will do is Israel will say, no, I don't want you as our king. We're going to instead choose an evil shepherd or a wicked shepherd. Zechariah has been talking about the wonderful blessings of the coming Messiah, the wonderful promise of him coming and judging the nations of the world, restoring the land, giving them rain, giving them crops, bringing his people back, whistling and calling the nation of Israel back and restoring and bringing peace to the Holy Land. But in chapter 11, Zechariah, Zechariah will point to a very sad truth that Israel will reject their king. The good shepherd, when he comes, they will refuse him. And because they refuse him, judgment will come upon the land. What we are seeing in verses 1 through 3 is we are seeing a terrible event written out in poetic fashion 
from the standpoint of the trees. I kind of think of um, uh, J.R. Tolkien here in, in some of his analogies that seems to be in a prophetic fashion of how these trees are being destroyed and being burnt to the ground. Oak trees from Bashan, cedar trees from Lebanon, all, in, all trees that were sources for the building of the palaces and the temple in Jerusalem. The gates are going to be swung open violently and the enemy is going to be allowed to march into the Holy Land and there like lions they will roar like fire they will burn it to the ground. In other words, God is rejecting the land because they have rejected Him. When is this taking place? This is with the difficulty. In verse 4, 5, and 6, Thus saith the Lord, Feed the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty that they sell them and say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. They don't show compassion. For I will no more show compassion or pity the inhabitants of the land. I will deliver every one in his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. He said, I will feed the flock of slaughter, even, uh, even you, O poor, the flock. I took unto me two stabs, and one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Verse 9, and then I said, I will not feed you that, that uh, dieth, let it die, and that, that it be cut off, let it be cut off, and let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it sunder. In other words, I broke it in half, that it might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me a price. And if not, then forbear. So they weighed out for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it into the, pot, into the potter, a goodly price that I was priced as of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and I cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut asunder my other staff, even the one called bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. There's going to be a civil war. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instrument of a foolish shepherd, for lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which will not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. And the sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. And his arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. What we are seeing in this portion of this chapter is a very sad reality that because Israel has rejected its Messiah, God will in turn reject them. Now, it's, it's swapped in the prophecy. We, we read the good stuff first, and then we read the bad stuff last. Chronologically, remember what comes first, the storm. So the bad stuff comes first, and the good stuff results from the bad, all right? And so, but when you read it in the chapter 10 and 11, you're reading it out of order. 
And that is because God wants the Jewish people, when He ends this message, He wants them to focus on their rejection of the Messiah. When the Word of God is preached and presented, when the Messiah comes, what we would see as the first time, what will the nation of Israel do when He shows up in Jerusalem? They will reject Him. And because of that, there will come a time of scattering and persecution. And I believe that happened in 70 AD. When Jesus came and offered Himself as their King for the first time, the nation of Israel instead crucified Him and put Him on the cross. And Stephen, as he preaches uh, to the nation of Israel, says, You killed Him. And because you killed Him, this generation is not going to see one stone upon another Jesus prophesies of this temple and is going to be cast down. And those very people, those very, that very um, nation of Israel did in fact see the destruction of, of Jerusalem in their day because of their rejection of the Messiah the first time. Father, I praise you. Help us as we close. Lord, there, there's so much in these two chapters that uh, just requires so much study and reading and comparison of other, other books. Zechariah is a, is a difficult book. And oftentimes hard to follow. And uh, Lord, we have to, to use the resources to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Uh, but Lord, as we see some of these nuggets and clues in, in the mystery with, within even this book, we can look back and we can see it playing out just as you promised. Whether it was Alexander the Great, whether it was the first coming of this Messiah who would march in and be lowly and meek and humble and, and them to reject him. And because of that rejection, a storm would come. The wrath that would come. And, we, and Israel is still experiencing that wrath because of the rejection. They are blinded. But one day, through an intense time of persecution and suffering, your people will again call out to you. And we pray that that would, that would happen. We pray for your kingdom to come. Uh, thank you for... Uh, the fact that we as believers in the New Testament age, the church is spared from your future wrath because of the Son. And uh, Lord, pray that you would help us to take comfort in the promises of God that we can put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our rock that we can lean upon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you, you are dismissed.